What a year it has been, church. I mean, every year it goes so fast. And I feel like particularly this year it has gone just like that, filled with ups and downs. Before you know it, we are in the last two Sundays of the year. This and next Sunday are it. All the ups and downs, all the jazz and tangos. <laughs> and here we are on the last two Sunday of the year. So this is the year, time of the year. Typically, you reflect back and also hope for a potentially better future that is upcoming in the year. And we, when you think about ourselves, have the deep yearning for hope and betterhood of life. Uh, if you had a particularly challenging year this past year, you don't go around and say, oh, next year, I hope I, I want to top that. I hope it'll be even worse than this year. Uh, none of you say that. If it was a relatively a good year, you say, I hope next year will be just as good, or maybe it can even be better. We certainly hope that because we are meant and created as a creature of hope. We want that hope and the betterhood of life. And in this story, a lot of times we do not want the darkness and sufferings. You're like, oh man, what an year it has been. I just don't want that darkness and suffering. Yet one of the lessons that scripture teaches us is that God can use and he will use all the darkness and sufferings that you have been through. Next year will be a better year. Sometimes you say, well, in spite of, despite all I have been through. You can say that. But sometimes God also says through your life, because you have been through this darkness and suffering, sometimes through those darkness and suffering, your brighter future is to come because of the glorious hope. So as much as we don't want this darkness, Hope for the weary world. We just want the hope, not the weary part. But sometimes God can take that for the good of all of us. What does that look like? That very story of hope, how Christ has brought us this glorious hope through all the ups and downs is what we are going to examine today in our time as we continue our series in the book of Isaiah, Hope for the Weary World. Three observations that I want you to observe and remember today. First, we'll talk about, we'll see the paradoxical Savior. His name's Jesus. We'll first observe that through the text we're about to dive in. And second, we'll need to understand another reason for the season. We often say this is the, there is the reason for the season, but there is also another reason for the season. And lastly, how do we truly have this hope in this weary world for our weary soul, let us embrace the depth of Christ's love for us. Those three observations and exhortation is where we are going. So, before we dive in, let me briefly catch us up. If you remember, not last Sunday, but Sunday before, Pastor Sheb kind of brought us turning point in Isaiah chapter 40. Before Isaiah chapter 40, it's filled with darkness and gloom, only glimpse of hope. But Isaiah marks such a great juxtaposition of chains. We are weary, but our hope is to come. And last Sunday, if you remember, Pastor Bill brought us, introduced this glorious theme 
of suffering servant, the one who is going to usher this change from this darkness and gleam to the brighter future that is to come is through this suffering servant. Who is this mysterious suffering servant? And today, I am diving into, in a sense, the climax of this suffering servant depicted in Isaiah chapter 53. Now, I personally believe this is the one single chapter, Isaiah 53, is the one single chapter in the entire Bible that talks about what happened at the cross of Jesus Christ better than any other chapters in the Bible. You might say, whoa, 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 Jen, that's a statement. What about the gospel writers? Sure, they talk about exactly what took place hour by hour, but it doesn't quite go in, in each in single chapter, it doesn't go in all the details about the meaning behind what Christ endured. But this chapter that we are about to look at, Isaiah 53, talks about what the meaning of a cross was all about. So this is such an important chapter that made all of us not just understand it intellectually, but embrace it to the core of our heart. To the degree that you embrace this message, I think our lives will be transformed. Shall we dive in? So first, let's look at the paradoxical Savior, Jesus. When you look at, like, well, now let me dial back three Sundays ago. Now you're like, Jin, I don't remember your sermon that long ago. I get it. I don't remember either. I had to look on my sermon notes. <laughs> we talked about Isaiah chapter 9. Here, it briefly introduced this glorious Savior that is to come. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Every time I read this verse, I've handled Messiah playing back of my head. I'm singing right now. But when you look at this Savior, man, can this person do any wrong? He's a wonderful counselor, mighty God. He's a counselor and a warrior. Together, therapist is not necessarily the most mighty warriors. But all that together, he's a glorious person. And Isaiah here in 52 and 53 continues that theme just for a little bit. Look at 52 and 13, our opening verse that we read. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. The word used wisely, we often think of wisely as one who conducts wisely. This is a little bit different meaning than that wisely. It means actually successful. He will be triumphed. He will be successful and triumphed. He'll be highly exalted. That's right. He's our Messiah and King who is going to come and exalted. And he's not only successful. Look verse 1, 53.1 in your Bible. Who has believed our message to whom has the arm of the Lord be revealed? When Isaiah says the arm of the Lord, he means very specific usage. This is not just abstract help of God. Oh yeah, arm of the Lord is there to help me. When Isaiah used the phrase arm of the Lord, he specifically means by how God has manifested his power of deliverance, especially in exile, in Exodus. Like Isaiah repeats that in Isaiah 63 too. Who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them, to gain for himself everlasting renown. The arm of the Lord is not his strength in general, but how specifically Israelites felt his power of deliverance. That's how it's used in Old Testament, like Exodus 6.6. 6. Therefore say to the Israelite, 
I am the Lord, and I'll bring you out from under the yoke of Egyptian. I'll free you from being slaves to them, and I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. So you see, Isaiah continues the theme of this glorious Savior who is going to come and rescue Israelites from their bondage, who's going to come and get rid of all the wrong. This nation of Israel were all extending all the unrighteousness, all the injustices, and this Savior is going to come and make all things right. And this Savior is amazing, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. He'll be successful. He'll be mighty. Man, what a superhero. I want that Savior. But then, wait a second. Here, Isaiah takes a very interesting turn. Did you notice what Isaiah says in 52.14? Look at what Isaiah says. This Savior, which is just complete amazing, he says, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Whoa, 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 wait a second. The appalled, when it's used for human, it's not just like, oh, he's not that good looking. No, when it's appalled, it means it's so disgusting that you have gag reflex. You want to puke. It's really what that means. And I haven't yet seen anybody, I'm like, oh, I just want to puke. I have gag reflex when I see that person. No. But like, wait, a superhero who can do no wrong? When we think of someone who's going to mighty rescue us, counselor, we don't think of someone who's appalling and not that you want to vomit and puke. Not only that, 53.2, what does it say? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. No beauty, no majesty. He was nothing desirable. Very unattractive savior. I mean, it says that he grew up like a tender shoot. And if you look at other translations, he says he grew up like a twig before God. Like a little twig. Who wants the twig? It's like a root out of a dried part of the soil. We don't want any of that. Who wants the Charlie Brown Christmas tree? Uh, if you don't know, well, I'm glad that you laughed. That means you understand what Charlie Brown tree is. If you don't know what Charlie Brown Christmas tree is, like the one single tree, there's like one couple branches, a very pathetic Christmas tree. Every time I go home, I drive by this Christmas tree selling location, whatever. They got the most gorgeous looking. I haven't seen a single store that says, this is a Christmas tree, I'm going to sell you a twig. Nobody wants that. They want the most glorious, majestic. Well, you might as well have competition. Who has the best Christmas tree in your house? Because you decorate that so nicely. And these days, I don't know what happened to me, church, but I've watched a couple Hallmark movies. <laughs> I, oh, well, there you go. A couple of things I learned watching Hallmark movies. I always think, number one, oh, I saw that coming. I mean, you know how Hallmark movie ends. Number two, I always thought, I always think, well, they're one good-looking people. And I'm thinking, well, average Joel, well, average Jin like me has no chance. <laughs> Hallmark people are so attractive. Why? Because people are drawn to that. When they dream of a fantasy, they want the most glamorous Christmas tree. What if we decorate the entire church with a little twig? You're like, what kind of church is this? You wouldn't want to. You don't care for that. We want the most majestic, glorious-looking actor and actress, the fantasy to come through, yet this Savior who is going to come and save us, what? 
You just want to puke at him? If Hallmark hires actors and actresses like that, I don't think anybody will watch that. And he dried up like a root out of the dry ground. What is going on in one city's majestic, wonderful, mighty counselor, warrior, successful, mighty arm of the Lord? But on the other side, it's disgusting. He has no beauty. What a horrible mixture of ups and downs of this glorious Savior. Can you imagine what these people were thinking when they were seeing this kind of Messiah, when they were hearing about this? Just like, though, God uses Christ's exhortation and condescension to bring us our salvation. As you reflect your ear, God uses all your ups and downs of your life to sanctify you and to mold you and to shape you. This horrible mixture of success and defeat, darkness and light, sunshine and the storm. God uses all of that to accomplish, accomplish his salvation for our soul. So you cannot possibly say, God, if you love me, my life should be walk in the park. Why? If God used this, all this glorious mixture of ups and downs of our Savior, his glory and his condescension, his no majesty, no beauty, to bring us our glorious hope in this Christmas, we cannot possibly say, God, you don't love me because my life is not walking the park. We cannot possibly say to God, God, I don't understand why is life so hard today. His redemptive love in your life, all those ups and downs are completely compatible with even difficult and darkest times of your life. We only want walk in the park. We only want the fantasy savior. But our paradoxical savior often leads us to paradoxical life. That is not just walk in the park, but he calls us to walk on a journey that is filled with ups and downs. So, how was your last year, church? If you examine your last year, it wasn't just complete upward, onward, my life's perfect. There were a lot of laughter, I hope, church, yet there were a lot of tears too, right? That's exactly God has rescued us. Our Savior himself subjected to that. So sometimes as you reflect your year nowadays, what you need to examine the most isn't necessarily what happened. Well, I do that every year. I hope you do that too. But sometimes examine what your expectation was through it all. If you only expected upward, onward sunshine forevermore, when the storm comes, what are you going to do? You will be crashed without any hope of rescue. So sometimes what we need is the discipline of hope. Hope should not fade. Hope is really easy to say when you win World Cup gold medal first place. You can say, I can do all things through Christ. Look at me. Can you say that when you're in the imprisonment at the bottom of the valley? When nothing's going okay, you say, you know what, I can still be content. I'm still okay because through ups and downs, our paradoxical Savior led us to this glorious life. Through ups and downs, it is well. Can you really say that? That's how Savior led us and how he has rescued us. His glory and his shame, his exhortation and condescension, 
his glory of mightiness, yet no one wanted to look at him. There's no beauty, no superhero, good looking, but no people wanted to puke at him. He had no majesty upon him. Now the question is, if that's how our God leads us today, how can we have hope in today then? Jin, oh, thanks a lot. I didn't come to church to hear you saying that life can be bad too. I thought it would be upward, onward. You brought us downward. Then how can we have hope even in this weary world? Isn't that what we are talking about? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's go there. It's the second thing we want to talk about. Understand another reason for the season. Now, you hear that a lot, right? The reason for the season. What do people mean by the Christians? We say, oh, Christ is the reason for the season. Let's not take Christ out of Christmas. I've heard that a lot. You've heard that a lot too, right? What does that mean? It means that this holiday of Christmas isn't just romantic, warm and fuzzy holiday, or it's neither romantic nor just familial holiday. It's the Christ. And yet, it's still incomplete. What, there is another reason for the season that Isaiah tells us. What is another reason for the season? It's you. You are the reason for the season. It's me. I am the reason for the season as well. And you might say, whoa, that's really narcissistic, Jinch, and you said you are the reason. I mean, exactly opposite than that. We are so hopeless. We are damned and cursed without hope that Christ had to come for us. See what Isaiah says in verse 3 and 553. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Do you see that? Christ just didn't come for his own glory. He came for us. Christ is reason for the season, and yet he has come for us to rescue us from our hopelessness, to rescue us from our transgressions and our iniquities. He was rejected by us, verse 3, and yet he was rejected for us, verse 5. That is the complete reason for the season that Isaiah brings us in this chapter, Isaiah 53. Now, this is the, actually the central message of the entire Bible that I just preached the last 15 minutes or so. But when you look at that, can you imagine what the original listener was thinking about this? You're like, wait, what? This original audience who was listening this passage 2,500 years ago, they were like, what are you talking about? A person was pierced? A person paid a price for a penalty? No, 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 you don't do that. That's for lambs and sheep and goats. They are the ones who pays the price. A person was pierced and transgressed. What, is, what are you talking about? It's the sheep and goats and lambs that are substitution, not a person. So like you say, should I just take you by word that this is about Jesus? Do people think of this as something different as well? Yeah, sure. Can you imagine the shock for the first original listener? They are like, well, I thought this is for lambs and goats and sheep who becomes our substitutionary, but now it's a person. What is this going on? They'll be shocked. 
And there's also other group of people who might think differently. You say, Jin, should I just take you by word that this is Jesus? Uh, there are people who take it differently as well. Now, we live in heavily populated of Jewish areas, so I want to be gentle here. But when I lived in Israel back in 2007 summer, in our group, we, I had a friend, his name is Cesar, who grew up in a synagogue who was a Jew. Uh, so I, I was very curious what he thought about, hey, how did your rabbi take you to Isaiah 53? What did he say? Cesar, actually, he down the road became Messianic Jew. That means the one who believed in Yeshua HaMashiach, Yes, Christo, whom we know as Jesus Christ. So he's a believer. Um, and he told me that his rabbi actually skipped to Isaiah 53. Um, and actually, I heard down the road, as I talked to many of my Jewish friends, a lot of friends of mine, people repeated a similar story that they didn't cover it. So I'm not quite sure whether it's just one of the stories that everyone repeats or rabbis really skipped that. I don't know for sure, but I heard that from a friend of mine. And yet when I talked to actual rabbi, I heard also that people take this as more like a nation of Israel. Nation of Israel was rejected and despised. Uh, so you say, oh, is this the nation of Israel then? Is that what we are talking about here? Yet, because those people will tell us that, Jin, you cannot have a circular reasoning. You are just reading New Testament into Old Testament, saying that this is Jesus. But how do I know this is Jesus? Uh, well, yeah, don't take me by my words. See what the text says. Hopefully, as you continue to argue, I'm going to argue third point. That I'm going to say this is Jesus, just a Protestant understanding. It is with all my heart, and I'll show you a reason why. So lastly, third so what Isaiah is doing here, he's looking at his modern problem of his days, but he's not looking at the modern solution of his time, but he's looking at the six, seven hundred years later, future solution of Jesus Christ. So third, last point, embrace the depth of Christ's love for you. When you read 4 and 5, well, how does it begin? Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Now, who likes suffering? Who likes to volunteer for suffering today? Don't raise your hand, please. That, I have to make a point in my sermon, but you, if you... We don't. We don't want to volunteer for suffering. Do we? I don't. I realize the only time I volunteer for suffering, there is time that actually you volunteer for suffering, I volunteer for suffering, is when we know our temporary suffering leads to greater comfort in the future. For example, children, you go to school. Why? Not that it's suffering, sorry. <laughs> but school, you work hard, you don't enjoy it, but you work hard for the brighter future, a successful future. You go to gym, you work hard, that's suffering. There's, when I go to my gym, there's a song that always plays in the background, what doesn't kill you, make you stronger. What doesn't kill you? And people are like, yeah. And I'm like, I am dying. <laughs> they suffer to get stronger. You only are willing to suffer temporarily for the brighter future. That's when we only volunteer for suffering. But what does here, in other words, we only, even when we are, nobody wants us to suffer, but we only suffer for only our means to be even better down the road. But we don't suffer really for others, do we? I don't. I don't like that. Why would I suffer for you? No, thank you. But what does verse 4 say? Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Verse 5, he was, and, and verse 40, and we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. We rejected him. 
But he was pierced for our transgression once again, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He suffered for us. He volunteered suffering for us. Who does that? No nation will ever volunteer for suffering. Yes, the nation of Israel suffered greatly, but it wasn't voluntary. It was due uh, to the rogue, how the nations have gone rogue, the sins of the people, sins of one another. Yet Jesus Christ, I don't volunteer. We live in a world where all of us seek our own good. Each nation, each person just seeks their own good. No one would ever volunteer for suffering. But Christ does that because he wants us to have this hope. To the degree that you can embrace this hope, the love that Christ showed for us, you will begin to really have hope. We hear that all the time, don't we? That Christ loved us, Jesus died for us. This Christmas, this reason for the season is that Christ has come. But has that really saturated down to your heart, church? Or is it just something that you should remember? Okay, Jesus loved me. He died for me in my place. He volunteered the suffering for me. I hope you take time to really let that sit down to your heart. There are a few means that allows me to sip it down to my heart. Um, there are a few books and movies and musicals <clears throat> that make me cry and weep every time I see or watch it. One of them is Les Miserables. Every time I watch that, I'm like sobbing, tearing up his understand. I'm sobbing. Another one that makes me just sob and weep each time is actually my favorite book of all time. Sorry, it's not available for you, church. It's just Korean novel. <laughs> um, so I'll tell you a story. You have to take me by words here. Um, what a letdown. But this book, the plot is that there's this child who has leukemia. Uh, so it was bestseller for a while, so he's about to die. Um, <clears throat> and dad, the single father, single dad, which poor doesn't have any means, does everything to cure for his son. Um, at one point, the father thought finally the son is cured from leukemia after spent all his energy, all his time, all his money. Finally, he's cured. He's released from the hospital, but leukemia being leukemia, that deadly cancer, it returns. And father is in complete despair. He does not know what to do because he spent every penny he can possibly imagine, gave up all his job and everything just to care for his son as a single father. Um, and in the plot, the son is a believer. He believes, uh, but the father is not. So out of desperation, he decides to go to church because uh, he has nothing to hold on. He decides to pray alone in cold floor of the church by himself. This is what the father prays, and I translate. God, you're right. I don't know you. I don't even know how to talk to you. But my son does. He never forgets to pray to you every meal. He prays every night before going to bed. You know, his biggest worry is not even his leukemia, but the fact that I don't know you. You consume his mind. I don't know whether my son is right or not about you but I want to support him because he chose to believe you. 
but you are a cruel and cold judge. All I got left in this world is my son. And why are you trying to take my last hope away? Is that too much to ask of you to heal him? Prove yourself. All he has known in this world is pain and suffering, but he still trusts you. Perhaps you might ask for a fair price because I'm asking you to do something without even knowing who you are. So, if it takes my life for my son to be healed and live, take my life instead of my son. I'll be willing to lay down mine. Take me instead, but let him live. Now in the end, actually, the father does exactly that. After the son gets the bone marrow transplant, he actually gets to live. He's cured. He's about to get released. But what the father hid during the whole time is that he also found out that he has deadly cancer of liver cancer. He has a choice to get himself cured and healed, but he has limited resources. And he decides to pour all that for his son, for his leukemia, let the cancer prolong. Um, and in the end, when the son is all cured and healed, he got only a few months left after all that journey. He spent all his energy and effort just for his son. He volunteers the suffering for his son because he loves the son to death. And after son is finally cured, he's like, I'm about to die. But he doesn't tell his son because the father does not want his son to ever live with the enormous guilt and shame that, oh, I lived because of my father's father killed himself. He could have got cure and treatment, but he just spent all the money. So he just doesn't even tell him that he has a cancer. And he just sends the son to his mother, who was actually absent the whole time. So the son doesn't understand. Dad, what are you doing? I want to be with you. The father doesn't want to tell him, just go. So son goes after all that's cured, and father's all alone. No money, no house, nothing left, about to die out of liver cancer. He's just at the very last impending death moment. He looks at his friend and says, you know, I always told my son that I'll go to church one day perhaps, but never did. Well, maybe I should pray at least now. That became his last word. He, he began to kneel and he dies in that position. Every time I read that, I'm sobbing. Why am I sobbing? Because I want that love. I want that. I am so self-absorbed. I don't volunteer. Only parental love, unconditional love will do that to you. He's volunteering for suffering. But that's what exactly Christ did for us. He volunteered. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Who does that? Unless you love them to death, just like this father literally. And you know what? You want that, this, this story to be true. This was, this, it seems like a very Christian book, isn't it? This was a bestseller in Korea for 42 weeks, number one book that sold any other secular books combined. People resonated with this story, even people in the world. Why? Because they long for this kind of love, the true love who bears our pain. But Chelton, do you know what that means? Do you know what this means? If Christ really took over poor and suffering on the cross, do you know what could have bound the limbs and legs of our Savior on the cross of Jesus Christ? I mean, he's the one that created stars and the heavens and the earth. He's the mighty warrior. This bare nails could not have bound him at the cross. Do you know what bound him at the cross? His love for you. 
He volunteered the suffering on the cross for you because he loved you to death. He loved me to death. I want that love. Why do I want that love, Chilton? Ever since Adam and Eve fell at the Garden of Eden, I am looking for the fig leaf. I'm desperately trying to cover up. If anybody really finds out about who I am, they won't love me. I'm messed up. I'm terrible. I'm constantly trying to find the fig leaf to cover my shame, cover my guilt. Christ thought through it all. But at the cross of Jesus Christ, no nail, no crown of thorn could bind him. But he still stood there still because he loved us unto death. He was despised. He was, trans he was pierced for us. What does verse 5 said? We read it. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. That love will change you. That is our hope for the weary world. Do you know how much Christ has loved you, that he volunteered? Nobody would volunteer this kind of suffering except what Jesus Christ has done. He was voluntarily born on this Christmas, voluntarily died on Good Friday for our sin and shame. And yet, guess what? The story does not end there. Look, verse 11 and 12, how does it end? After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercessions for the transgressors. Because Christ was condescended for our sin, one day he will be exalted and we will be the sharer of his all inheritance. Shelton, I believe in happy ending. And this happy ending that is too good to be true is coming because Christ volunteered. He came. He became incarnate son of God on this Christmas. And he stood on the cross for our sin, defeated sins. We no longer need to be covered by the fig leaf. We are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Christ exalted will return one day, make all things right. Jesus has come. That's what this Christmas is all about. And yet he will come again. That is the very promise of God. That is the very hope for the weary world. How are you, church? Often you know your sins, your sorrow, your darkness so much more than how much Christ has loved you. That's when there's ups and downs of life happens. You're like, God, do you really love me? Downs, what's going on? But we have a voluntary Savior who volunteered for suffering for our sins and shame. To the degree that you embrace that, realize how much he has loved you, you will begin to bubble up the hope for your weary soul. What is there for you today you are going through? I pray that you plunge all your suffering and sorrow into the love of Jesus Christ who was despised and ashamed of our sin. Let's look to him. Let's pray. God, we look to our Savior who was pierced for our transgressions. Really, Lord, you are crushed for our iniquities. And that punishment that was laid on you is the very means that brought us peace. 
by your wounds we are healed. Lord, you volunteered for that. How could you do that? I want that kind of love that changes me. And Lord, because you loved us that much, now we can love others, same, laying down our lives for the flourishing of others. Oh God, this love is too good to be true, but you've shown that in this Christmas. Move us, mobilize us, compel us to do the same. And when we are weary, oh Lord, oh God, help us to look to you, the cross of Jesus Christ. You stood up there for love. You loved us unto death. May they continue to move us and shape us. Oh God, give us hope we need it. In your precious name we pray, amen.